Welcome to the Dream for Others podcast. I'm Naomi Arnold, an award-winning business and life passion coach, writer, speaker, and human rights activist. This show features inspiring conversations with those who use their platform, passions, and uniqueness to make a difference in the world. If you are big-hearted, open-minded, a lifelong learner, and are on a mission to help create a better world, this is the podcast for you. Now let's get started and dream for others. Today, I am stoked to have Lisa Renee Hall on the Dream for Others podcast. Lisa is a writer, storyteller, and diversity advocate. Author of seven books, Lisa was lauded as a technology pioneer and futurist before turning her attention to using her words to disrupt the stories we tell ourselves about diversity and identity. After writing half a million words over 365 consecutive days, Lisa discovered that words can help one find their true purpose. Lisa helps spiritual and business leaders use curious inquiry to question their views on diversity so they can become effective leaders and create truly inclusive communities, companies, and corporations. She teaches that the only way you can have hard conversations around systemic oppression is first through breakthrough of your inner oppression using the combination of curious inquiry and expressive writing. Lisa is also on the advisory board for Awarepreneurs, a global community of social enterprise business leaders and entrepreneurs with a focus on social justice, diversity and inclusion. I am a patron of Lisa's work on patreon.com slash Lisa Renee Hall and have learned so much from her through that platform and also through her other writings. This will become clear, no doubt, by the questions I ask her on the podcast today, which feel like they might become a list of greatest hits that I've learned from Lisa and hope that listeners might too. But that's enough about that. Let's get started and hear from Lisa. Hi, Lisa. Thank you so much for taking time to chat with me today on the Dream for Others podcast. Thank you for having me. I I was looking forward to this conversation. So I'm excited that we're here together. I'm really excited too. I, when I was reflecting back on last year, you were one of the people who I've learned the most from in your writings and how you show up online. And I think you might know that to a certain degree, but (laughs) based on what I've shared, and I think it'll become clear as well to the listeners, because When I was writing down what questions I'd like to ask you, they're pretty much the greatest hits of Lisa of what I've learned this year from you. (laughs) So thank you for being that person and and thank you for hopefully being patient when I ask you a zillion questions today. Not a problem. We'll we'll have fun. We'll have lots of fun. Yeah, good. I, I bet we will. So my first question, which of course, starts from following you on social media and Patreon and your blog. I saw that you mentioned in your writings that you're not a fan of the question, what do you do? And you oh, prefer, my goodness. Yeah. Oh. Oh. That's such an introvert thing too, is I, I it think. It is. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it is. And I remember, I, I'll never forget, I remember going to a networking event in downtown Toronto where I, I was born and raised. And I'll never forget, I went 
because a colleague had invited me. And as I was sitting at this round table, a lady sat not too far from me. Oh, is anyone sitting here? I said, no, absolutely not. So she turned to me. She goes, who are you with? And so because I haven't been to a networking event in ages, I was just like, uh, I came alone. And she's like, no, I mean, what company are you with? Oh, okay. I was like, oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. I said to her, um, I'm, and I didn't know, like there was a terminology that they use. Like, I think it was like agency versus, you know, or I can't remember what. And so I just said, I said to her, uh, freelance. And so she's like, oh, and then she completely shut down <laughs> and didn't say anything to me for the rest of the day. And we were just, we were still the only two people at this table. Mm. So questions like that, like, what do you do? And who are you with? It's, it's a means to, to close the possibility of building relationships. Mm. And that's why I hate those questions. Yeah, me too. And people don't get the freelance thing if they're not a freelancer themselves. No, <laughs> that's very mysterious. <laughs> yes, very. So you were mentioning in this post that you prefer questions like what's got your attention and what are you passionate yes. about and yes. things like that. Yes. Mm. There was a CEO I read in a book once where he uh, answered the question. If someone did end up asking him, what do you do? He said, I love to ski. I love to fish and I print envelopes. Mm -hmm. And so that's the way he answered. Now it's like, okay, which of the three do you want to ask him questions about? The envelopes, the skiing, which one? And so I remember going to a networking event and introducing myself that way. I'm a new aunt. I um, have seven books. I've published seven books. And I can't remember the other thing I said. And this lady went, what? <laughs> <laughs> that's not how you do an intro. She's <laughs> like, what? So... Um, <laughs> was so bizarre so the questions like what's got your attention um what are you passionate about I think even on Facebook it asks a question I, I don't think it's a question it's like a statement I can't remember uh what it is but it, it's a it's a type of question that opens up the possibility of creating that connection based on an interest a hobby and once you create that connection now you can go beyond and it's like oh you know we've been talking about uh, being savvy aunties for the last, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes, what actually do you do? Yes. And now there's a possibility for a richer, deeper, deeper relationship. And I hate to use cliches, but they say that you do business with people, you know, like, and trust. Yes. What better way to build that no like trust factor than to ask better questions? Mm, exactly. And it helps you listen better as well and know what questions to ask next. Yes. Rather than because going now, into autopilot mode of what do you right. do? I do this. Oh, okay. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Facebook asks, what's on your mind? Yeah. I, and I never even, I'm typing into Facebook all the time. I didn't even know that's the question they asked, but. I haven't uh, again. noticed either. <laughs> <laughs> right. Wow. So don't ask better questions to get better responses. And again, like you said, and that's actually based in neuroscience that when a question is asked, it tricks the brain and it moves it out of autopilot, as you said. Mm -hmm. um, there was, um, and it's a beautiful way to mitigate conflicts online. So on the other, uh, a couple of days ago, I had posted a few pictures from there's a brand, a retail brand out here called Sears that just went bankrupt. 
and I'll tell you this, it's been in a bank, like anyone who knows retail, even as a casual customer, uh, Sears has been in decline for at least a decade. And it opened up in the US in the 50s. It was a storied brand. They had the first distribution network throughout North America, Canada and US. They had the catalog. Everyone waited at their door for the catalog. I don't know what the Australian equivalent would be, but this big, huge catalog would come to your door at Christmas and people would flip through and, you know, and to see that they couldn't transition that catalog-based business into online, it's just so sad. So I had gone to the store because it was its last day. I took a bunch of pictures. I posted it on Instagram and some dude came along and wanted to blame the Canadian prime minister for the failure of Sears due to high taxes. And I was just like, what? <laughs> so I was, usually I don't respond, but I responded, I said, dude, Sears has been in decline for a decade, for a decade. Mm-hmm. And then I guess he thought that he would talk about, well, that's what happened to the US under Obama. And I was just like, oh. So I asked a question. <laughs> I could easily have, you know, I could have easily engaged in back and forth with him. Yeah. Because that's what he was looking for. But the question I asked him was this, are you okay? And every time I read the question, I kind of laugh because it's like, are you okay? And he came back with, yeah. And that killed the conversation. It was done. Wow. Questions interrupt. Yeah. Bet you he's not used to that one. No, he's not. (laughs) No, he's not. And that's why I love questions. Yes. Yes, well, it's clear you love questions in what you do, and we'll get to mm-hmm. a lot of that as well. Um, it's a big part of everything for you. Yes, mm-hmm. it is. Mm-hmm. So to begin, what's got your attention right now? Oh, my. Uh, what has got my attention? Well, after writing half a million words in 365 consecutive days, mm-hmm. I sat down and I asked myself, what's next? So what's got my attention, I, I, I have seven books. First one was published by a publisher. The, the next six were self-published. And I don't think I want to do a book again, which is weird, right? Half a million words when you want to publish that into a book. So what's got my attention now is figuring out how to bring forth my words in a visual format that's entertaining, that's emotional, that gets people to think, that gets people to laugh. So one of the things I'm looking at doing, which has been a lifelong dream, is to produce my first documentary. Mm. And that's got me excited. I'm also looking at perhaps doing small video shorts between now and then and uh, to give myself some practice on how to film, how to produce, how to put this the story together before the big documentary is finished. So that's what's got my attention now. And I thought that after writing all these words, I'd want to go and speak on stages. I would want to, again, publish the book. But um, I'm looking at something that will hold my attention for a while. Mm. And allow me to use my creativity. I play the organ at a church every other week. So how can I incorporate my love of playing an instrument into my work? Mm. How can I bring my volume of words, half a million, yeah. but, but, but take it and, 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 and distill the ideas that I wrote about in half a million words into 
a 30 second short. So that's the challenge I'm looking, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing now is taking this volume of words and then asking myself, how can I bring them forth so that I get the best impact, but using a visual method. Mm. And is this something completely new and different and exciting for you? Have you done oh visual work before in this way? Aside from chatting on a, you know, doing a talking head video, I did do, I did do a video when my sixth book came out, six, no, my seventh book, when that came out, I did a trailer because the question I keep getting asked is how do you come up with your ideas for books and how do you get them written? So I did a one minute video and I, I scripted it out. I did storyboards <laughs> and I, I, I had my, well, it was my sister, but my videographer, cause she's like, you got to make sure you tell me what to do. So I gave her all the storyboards. So I've never done storyboarding before. Yeah. That sounds fun. Oh my goodness. It was so much fun. And so I had to give her the point of view. I want you to capture in this shot, this shot. So it made it so much easier to film and then piece together. And so that I would say was the first time I produced um, a video that wasn't talking head. And I also incorporated some of my own music that I play and I put together. So that was fun. Mm. That was a lot of fun to do. It sounds very fun. And will the, like, I think I know some of the answers to these questions, but for those listening, who don't know, <laughs> will the visual representations and the documentary that you're doing be based around some of the I guess lessons or things yeah. that you wrote about over though that year yes yeah. so one of the big I think you I think you came across my work when I published a blog post and yes. this was this is about 10 months into my writing process mm. and I was sparring and maybe that's too strong of a word but I was going back and forth with a gentleman who was from Brighton mm -hmm. out in the UK and I don't know why his words caught my attention but he kept he kept saying that he's a white man from Brighton in the UK and no one understands that he's also poor so here's a man who should have privilege because of his gender and race but yet is marginalized because of his class. Mm -hmm. So there was a few of us interacting with him, but every time someone else would share their labels, he got upset and called them um, uh, left-leaning, whole food eating. I don't know if you, you have whole foods down there in Australia, mm -hmm. uh, but whole foods is like the, the plate, like the health food store where you go and you buy the organic everything. And, you know, so he was calling it was just bizarre, his, his attitude, like it was so weird. It's like he wants sympathy, but then he's going to, he's going to establish, reestablish his racial superiority, superiority when someone else comes in. It was just, and so because of my love of questions, I offered to him about nine, um, a few writing prompts, questions that, and I said, here are some questions, get a pen and paper out and write down everything and anything that comes to mind after you read the question. I didn't have to do this. But to me, questions are beautiful because they, again, like you said, and you're correct, it gets the brain out of autopilot. Yes. It causes you to stop and think. So I thought, you know, this guy's very combative. Let's see if this helps. Mm. 
And then you turn those questions into a, a post. Yeah, because yeah. he rejected my questions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like he totally rejected it. Like he was just like, yeah, whatever, you know. And then he started getting a little bit um, pissy about like it was just it was just awful. So I said to myself, since he's not going to use these questions, I'll just throw it into a blog post. Mm -hmm. So a post on my blog is typically shared around 150 times. So I threw this on my blog and I said, you know, these are writing prompts if you've ever been accused of white privilege or white fragility or spiritual bypassing. And I mean, we can define what those are if your listener doesn't know. But so I threw in a blog post and I'll tell you, it took me about a week to revise it and put it together. And then it took me another three hours to push, push publish. So I'm just like, what are my clients going to think? Because I don't talk about race. Yes. I've never talked about race. Like I'm, I've been socialized in Canada to believe that race doesn't matter. Mm. So, the, so the obsession that many African-Americans or, or Americans in general have around race and race politics, that doesn't exist in Canada. Mm. And so here I was now, all, now I'm stepping out and now I'm talking about skin color. And, and so I'm just like, what is my parents going to think? Where are my family members going to think? Okay, you know, every, you know, we're all polite Canadians. We don't talk about these things. And so, but, so that's why it took me about three or four hours before I pushed publish. And then once I hit publish, I shared the link to that blog post in three places. And then I walked away. Yeah. <laughs> I think I went to get dinner. I can't remember what I did. And then when I came back and checked about three hours later, the blog post was shared 1500 times. Yeah. Wow. Yes. And then it just kept climbing and climbing and climbing. And I'm sitting there and I'm just like, what is going on? Mm -hmm. 12,000 times mm -hmm. that blog post was shared. And I imagine it still gets shared. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I get emails from people saying, you know, we use these questions in our mastermind group. Mm -hmm. I had a couple uh, who emailed me. She said, you know, my daughter just had a, a, a baby and a, a, her, her daughter is mixed race. Or was it a son? I can't remember. Anyways, they said their grandchild is mixed race and they're working. And she said she and her husband are working through the questions so that they can be better grandparents to their first grandchild. You know, stories like that. Right. Mm. And so I share this backstory because one of the ways in which I want to help to prop up that blog post is to have a documentary exploring white fragility and exploring spiritual bypassing through interviews, through interviews with intellects about this topic, uh, perhaps get some interviews with both sides. Because mm -hmm. I've heard some people say, well, that's a, that's a reverse racism term. And then other people are like, no, that's an apt term. It does explain it. Mm -hmm. and, and, and explore that topic in a visual format. And so that gets me lit up. That gets me excited. Mm -hmm. So you went from being scared to like, you know, taking time to settle with yes. putting that post out to now doing a documentary on it. Yes. Yeah. And, and it's funny. It wasn't I, that I long know. ago, really, that we're talking yeah. about. Yeah. No, it's yeah. like 90 days ago yeah. at the time of the recording. Yeah. But what was funny is uh, that during my process of writing over the past year, one of the things I did is I went through a, a, an act of remembrance. Mm -hmm. And what I did is I dug up things that I had stored away, like my degrees, my uh, articles I've written in the past that had my byline on it. 
just to remind myself what skills that I have and what laid dormant. And I found a letter that I had written to the editor of one of the newspapers here in Toronto. It was dated 1994, where I complained about, and I was 20 years old in 1994, and I had complained in the letter about being a young black woman, female, in Toronto, and some of the incidences or experiences with racism that I experienced. Mm. And so it was, it was the letter of the day. It was big and bold at the top of the section. And about a week later, two women wrote a letter in response to mine. And they pretty much said, you know, hey, that's, you know, that's not racism. That's, you know, that's, a, that's your youth. Because, and then they explained when they were in there, when they were young, they were harassed by shopkeepers because they asked, you know, you're too young to be in here. Did you get a letter from their mom? And then they ended the letter by saying that if you look for racism, you'll find it. So Naomi, at the time, and I'm pretty sure this is the reason why I clipped out the article. At the time, I was like, oh, that's nice advice. <laughs> but as I looked at it with my 40-year-old eyes, I said to myself, this is dismissive. It's minimizing my experience. It's telling me that I attract racism mm. because I go looking for it. And I was so angry. But, and little did I know that this experience with the blog post and then this experience 20 years later, that they were somehow linked. Yes. And that became my message that the next step, Lisa, is to do the documentary. Yeah. And you've been writing uh, a lot since then about... You know, white yes. privilege and racism and and those topics in your experience and readings yes since then hmm. and it's interesting that this process of writing over the course of 365 consecutive days some most times I, I woke up very early in the morning 4 30 a.m and I'd write around shortly after that time but I didn't know that by going through this process, my writings would get deeper. It would become more expansive. Mm -hmm. And I'm finding that because I'm sharing more of my experience around race, around identity, around diversity, I'm finding that my, I have to, I'm finding that I'm posting less and getting more engagement hmm. compared to when I was posting about, you know, five ways to, to um or five mistakes to avoid when doing a podcast interview yeah you know? <laughs> don't tell me what one they are because i probably do them all <laughs> would be one or two likes right and then people would be yeah. arguing well no no number mistake number three you know this is the way i do you're wrong you're wrong yeah. but no one can tell you that your experience is wrong well they try and that's to why but... <laughs> and they try to yeah but no one can tell me that in 1977 i did not experience what i experienced mm. you can't tell me that mm. and because of that it's like my sister said that when you start sharing aspects of yourself, it's like reality TV. People want to take a peek and like, okay, what's she sharing now? What's she sharing now? Yeah. And so it just makes the the content I share much deeper and richer. Yeah. Which makes people want to share it more and more. I mean, it's I'm talking about me. Yeah. And people are like, share, share, share. I'm just like, this is about me. <laughs> and you're combining you that with powerful questions though as well. So people yes. really connect with the sharing and the the face, you know, behind the screen that we often don't see and and then those questions. So you might be going and talking about things like identity and 
and whatnot, but then that's causing, you know, me on the other end, for example, to start asking those questions and doing those things too. So it's, it feels like a really personal, rich connection with someone you've never met. Wow. It's incredible. It is incredible. Hmm. And I'll include a, in the show notes, links to some of the things that we're talking about today, including that post, which I've seen myself get shared a lot and used in groups, um, for people to work through together as a group. And it's on my, I have a little list of mostly prompts from you, (laughs) 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 including that one. And including uh, one you shared just recently on Martin Luther King Day, for example, of um, questions that my next goal to building on my habit in the morning is to return to having a writing practice and to begin with using some prompts and those types of questions that you have are right there on the top of the list. So I'll share all those in the show notes in case anyone who's listening wants to, to come along and do that as well. Nice. Now, one of the things that was coming up while you were talking then for me was, and it reminds me of another post that you posted around being an introvert and a highly sensitive person and how your activism looks different. And part of what you were just describing to me is, and this you might not agree, but <laughs> it's it's how you do your activism is how you show up and ask these questions and get people thinking and out of that autopilot mode and and it inspires like a deeper analysis and action and to me yes. that's a really powerful tool to activism that a lot of people haven't really thought about they think activists are people who do protests and yes. uh, things like that so I'd love to just get to hear from you what activism looks like for you especially as an introverted you know highly sensitive empath I know that um being high, I, I read the book by, oh, I can't remember her name. Oh, I can't, I, anyways, I won't say the name, but it's a, it's a book called The Highly Sensitive Person. And that was, I, I didn't read it on, until about five years ago. So I wish someone had read that mm. when I was younger, mm. uh, because I think maybe I would have been parented differently. Because as a highly sensitive person, it doesn't mean that you're sitting in the corner weeping all the time. It, <laughs> it describes how you interact with your environment. So highly sensitive people tend to be very aware of loud sounds, bright lights. Even the fabric that they wear has to be a certain texture. Otherwise, it becomes very, it, not even just bothersome, but it just it just shifts the energy and just makes you feel irritated. So when it comes to activism, I remember that, um, and and this is something that formed for me as I was reviewing my writings Mm -hmm. from university. And when I was a freelance writer after I graduated from university, that I was always advocating for a cause in the articles I wrote. And so trying to go out into the wherever to march in the streets, but the, you know, it's like, oh, the sun is too hot and this is bothering me. And li- all these loud sounds are driving me nuts. And then it will take me three days to recover by, you know, lying in a fetal position in my bed in the dark with darkened drapes or, 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 cover, or wall, wall coverings, uh, window coverings for like, you know, three days just to recover. 
And so if we don't pursue a form of activism that aligns with our personality, then we won't do it. Yes. And so as I started making the connection between being highly sensitive, introverted, and uncovering my writings, I was like, but this is the way, this is, this is what I do. This is what I do. It's like a big dog. Yeah, there's, the whole street's going off. There must be someone walking down the street or something. <laughs> Just had to make mention of it. Uh, my very good microphone. I know. <laughs> uh, sorry, so, um, that probably distracted you from your, your thought. Just a tad, just mm. a tad. This is but, what you um, do, I think you were saying. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, dogs. See, and, you can be quiet now. Yes. Be quiet. And see, that's another thing, the, you know, noisy dogs, you know, immediately, like I'm centering in on the background sounds and so forth. So what, what cemented the idea of writing as activism was watching a TED Talk. And this TED Talk was by a lady who talked about introversion and activism using the power of um, of, of, of uh, knitting gloves or something. Yeah. And I thought to myself, whoa. And uh, let's see, Activism Needs Introverts by um, Sarah Corbett. Mm. And so when I watched it, I was like, oh, so I can do activism that aligns with my highly sensitive introverted self. Mm. And if writing is that, well, it's like Sarah gave me permission to use writing as activists. And I mean, throughout history, we've seen different people using writing as a form of activism. Martin Luther did that with the 95 Theses when he, you know, nailed it to the front door of the Catholic Church. Mm. Martin Luther King Jr., he did that from jail when he penned that letter in response to the eight clergymen who were criticizing his method of activism. And we can keep going on and on and finding other examples of individuals that have used activism through writing in order to make change. Mm. And so I believe it's important that if writing is something that you can do, do it. Yes. A single tweet can be shared, uh, you know, thousands of million times as we see with the United States current president. Yeah. Oh boy. Um, anyways, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so, and, and in her book called the artist way, Julia Cameron says that attention is an act of connection. And so when we write, if that draws people's attention, then that's a way that we can create connection. And if we can connect, then we can inspire more and more writers to get together and use the written form to inspire change. Yes. Oh, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> it speaks to my soul. <laughs> yeah. And that's not to yeah. say, of course, we're not saying that protesting and other means of activism aren't important, of course, but right. um, that it is important to find your way and this is a powerful way that you can you can create change within yourself and also have that ripple on effect to others yes absolutely yeah and one of the like I'm evidence I think of the impact of your writing just in how it has led to not only personal reflection but me taking action in different areas too 
for example, by sending off my ancestry kit to find out yes, <laughs> what my heritage. Yeah. And that was triggered by I think your your writing and and a post on social media and following some of the conversation on there. I think I came along late to it, but when I read it, I was like, oh my gosh, this just speaks volumes about me and my privilege as well and how it's just never been of interest to me to learn about those things and then reading your writings I was just like it should be (laughs) um it should be so I went along and I don't know it was a sale that day and got it at a pretty good price because it was over Black Friday (laughs) or something (laughs) And I'm now waiting and checking every day going, hurry up, send through my results. That's the excruciating thing. I just (laughs) just mailed in my, like the whole spitting part is kind of gross, but I just dropped that in the mail and now I'm just sitting here because it's like six to eight weeks and I'm sitting here waiting, 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 waiting. So (laughs) that's the excruciating part. But but you have been uh, doing some digging haven't you into your past and your your ancestors and and history there because I've seen some of your writing and has that been through following family tree type paths it has and it's also part of the process when when I started writing when I got up at 4 30 a.m on January 3rd 2017 it was to write my first work of fiction Mm. and Part of it was like, oh, I'm, you know, do I even have permission to do so? I've, I've written only nonfiction books. Who, what gives me the right to write now um, to, to write a work of fiction? And so for the first two months or so, I would wake up every morning, even on weekends at 4.30 a.m., and I'd write at least one chapter for the historical fiction. Mm-hmm. And then on day 60, I woke up that morning and I was feeling a bit of, I was just not feeling good about a professional setback. So I sat down that morning, I started writing about that. And so when I was writing, the next day I did the same thing. I just started writing through my feelings, unedited, unstructured, uncensored. And it was in that moment, as I continued writing about me, I moved into writing to heal. Because the character I needed to develop wasn't the characters in these historical fiction, but was the character of Lisa. So I started writing to heal and part of healing was understanding who is in my bloodline. So my history did not start with slavery. It's much more deeper than that. Just like Australians, your history did not start with a bunch of convicts that showed up on the shores Mm. of this big, huge, you know, island country. Yes. It's much deeper than that. But if you don't know who that person is beyond who showed up, like my people, they showed, they all showed up on this island in Jamaica. Some of them were forced there. Those were the, um, those were my ancestors from West Africa who were, who became slaves on the plantation. And then on my mother's side of the family, my ancestor was a French white man who fled from Haiti after Haiti obtained its independence. Mm. So Haiti obtained its independence on January 1st, 1804. And the first thing they did is they put out a decree that any white person left on that island was to be killed. My ancestor, so thousands and thousands of white Haitians and white French people who were on that island 
fled. Some of them went to France, if they could afford to. Others went to the United States. And for those whites who could not afford the lengthy trip to the United States or France, they ended up in Cuba, Puerto Rico, or Jamaica. Mm -hmm. And my ancestor was one of those people. He, he ended up in Jamaica. So I find this out and, and I'm digging around. So I use a couple of genealogical websites to dig around. I hope I said it right. Genealogical. I have no uh, idea. It sounded right to me. So. <laughs> <laughs> so I use a few ancestry websites and I found slave registries that had my ancestor's name on it. So after like... <laughs> And this is what I discovered through writing. It's all these paradoxes, right? Mm -hmm. So my ancestors on my paternal side, that's um, the slave, you know, that's where my slave ancestors. On my maternal side, that's the white French man. And, and, and it's like this paradox, right? So my white French ancestor flees Haiti because he's being hunted because of the, his skin color. Mm -hmm. And then he ends up in Jamaica and ends up getting land and money from the British and guess what? He owns people. Mm. 26 slaves. I found the slave registry with his name on it. 26 slaves. Mm. So now he is owning people based on their skin color. And it's like a paradox, right? Yeah. And so I had to work through all this. Yeah, it's a I had to, to work through these. Yes. That there's whiteness in me and there's blackness in me. Mm -hmm. That it took five generations for whiteness to disappear. Mm. But that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Mm. But I'm not claiming to be white. Mm. But then how do I reconcile the fact that my white relatives and or my white ancestors, my black ancestors came together and, and, and created me, and now a few generations, there's me. Yeah. You see what I Yeah. And the generational experience that flows on yeah. to impact everyone. Mm. So I wrote through this and that's when I discovered that words can heal your lineage. Mm. That it's, I can't reject the realities that are in my bloodline. Mm -hmm. And so doing the DNA kit and doing the, and the writing around healing my lineage helps me to understand that there's nuances to who I am, that I am more than my skin color. Yeah. Just like Naomi, you are more than your skin color. Mm -hmm. And when we dig deep and we find out those nuances we can write those angry words. We can write the words of disgust. We can start healing around the choices that our ancestors made so long ago. And no longer, and I'm no longer embarrassed that there's slavery in my ancestry. I'm no longer angry at my white ancestor for owning slaves. Because without them coming together, I would not be. Mm. And now that I accept the intersectionality of who I am, now it's easier for me to accept the nuances and layers that belong in others. Yes. Yeah. And I think one day you wrote around, oh, correct me if I don't articulate this well, but you wrote around how we're often, especially white folk, I think you were talking about specifically, a program to like or socialize to connect with whiteness and be proud of whiteness. Yes. And not their heritage or lineage and and that, you know, whiteness isn't a scientific construct, it's a social and political one. And it's um, yes. you know, and that helps by looking into your heritage and and learning to connect with 
your culture and your lineage and working through things like you've spoken about there is part of that healing process instead of focusing and staying rigid in I should be, I can be proud that I'm white or whatever yeah right yeah and 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 I had and and what and the and the issue around this is that when I'm questioning my whiteness and I make that I make those words visible on social media mm. no one ever stops to ask the question why is this black woman asking or making these comments about whiteness yeah never what people do is they report the post and boom it's gone yeah you get called racist, reverse ra- reverse racism card. But how can I out. be racist? Yeah. yeah right. But yeah. how can I be racist if whiteness is within me? Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, it is. So I, and, I, I, sorry, were you about to say something? No, no, no. You go ahead. I'm just, while you're talking here and remembering that post, because that was one of the ones I came back to later and there was a lot of horrible things written in the comments there that must have been really hurtful um, to process, especially as a highly sensitive person. Um, so I'm curious, especially now that you are writing about these these things, you are having white folk and white fragility and responses yes. coming up in these posts. How, how do you look after yourself as a mm-hmm. introvert and a highly sensitive person when you're in this space that is just bombarding you with these types of of things. It's so funny you ask that question because just uh, over the co- last couple of days, uh, I have had to block a few people, not a few, uh, a couple of people because of white fragility. Mm. And so what is white fragility? Someone might be asking, you know, oh my goodness, this sounds horrible. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so the phrase was was uh, created by an author. I'm tempted to say Dr. Rosalind, but anyways, um, we can link to it in your show notes. Definitely. But um, white fragility means this. It's uh, a way to withdraw or defend, argue, minimize, ignore, uh, or push back against claims of racism. And that's done in order to regain their uh, and it's an, an effort for white people to regain their racial position. Mm. So, and, and I had, I had tongue in cheek. I wrote that white fragility follows a five step act. And so act one, so this is what happens. A person of color posts an experience that they had with racism. Mm-hmm. So act one is a white person will, will come in and say, well, they'll, they'll defend, they'll diminish what has happened. And what some of the things they'll say is, well, are you sure it was racism? Maybe the person was having a bad day. Or you should go back and talk to them and make sure that that's your understanding. Or I need to see proof. Yeah. All right. So that's act one. Yeah. So now the person of color is now offended because now you're telling me you don't believe me. So this is, I'm telling you the dynamics that's happening. So the person of color will come back to defend themselves. And so act two is mock, minimize, ignore. Mm. So maybe they'll say something like, uh, you know, oh, you're just too sensitive anyways. Or they'll make a comment, say, well, it was just a joke. And and so that's act two. Then act three is where it gets um, even more um, 
I don't want to use dangerous, but even more heated because in Act Three, this is where the um, this is where white fragility makes a decision, <laughs> and that decision is to then either delete what they've written, and then it, it now take away everything that other people have contributed. So now the, the white person will say, oh my goodness, this is getting out of hand. Oh, this is too public for me. I don't want people to see what I've listed, written, whatever. I, I have to get rid of it. And then they delete it. Mm. And then act four is to then contact the person of color and continue to, behind the scenes, continue to defend and, and diminish and ignore and minimize their, their concerns. Mm. And then act five is to then post, uh, you know, block the person and post on their social media profiles what they believe happened. Mm. And it happens this way every time. Yep. Five acts, boom, mm. every time. Mm. I can call it. I can tell you exactly what's going to happen because it follows that script every, every, every time. Mm. So you ask the question. So I'll give you this background because you, you ask the question, how do you take care of yourself? Mm. I've decided to exit stage left after act one. Mm. I don't even bother. I, so the other day I blocked someone because I went to act five and then six, no, not act five. We went to act three. Mm-hmm. And then I gave her chances. We went to intermission. We came back. We redid Act 3. Went to intermission again. Came back and did Act 3. And Act 3 is where, you know, you go through private messages. And then finally I said, why am I wasting my time? She's not going to change her mind. Yeah. Highly sensitive. I'm an introvert. My words are precious. Yeah. I need to treat them preciously. So I just told her, you're dangerous. Go away. And I blocked her. Yeah. So how do I take care of myself? I exit after act one. Yeah. And you've had to had learn to. that the hard way too by the, the sense of The hard way. Yeah. yeah. I go to the box office and I say, give me a refund. <laughs> I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the only if, way. If only you could get some if money back for that. Yeah. And I, I don't tolerate it anymore. So when, um, like on Facebook, you have two mailboxes. At the time of this recording, there's two mailboxes. Mm-hmm. One is, you know, for your friends and the other one is where everyone else. Mm. And so whenever I see message requests with, you know, a notification one or two, I don't even look at that. Mm. I don't look. And if I happen to look and sometimes it's like, you know, the weirdest people, I immediately go to their profile block and that's it. I don't even engage. Don't engage. Yeah. And that's how I take care of myself because my time and attention is too precious to waste on someone who's not going to change their mind, who are only out to be right and to regain their racial superiority over me. I don't have time. No. You're doing other epic stuff. You need to create documentaries and, <laughs> right. and do what's lighting you up and, yeah. and, and helping the an people Oscar. who are ready. Yeah. Yeah. And oh. get this thing translated into 15 languages. Yeah. I don't know. My point is that I've been given an assignment Mm. by the divine Mm. and that assignment takes precedent over my need to convince and to, and to teach, even teaching, like I'm just over it. I cannot, I cannot, Mm -hmm. I have more important things to do. And, and 
I mean, you can imagine with, you know, your elected officials, they're not sitting there every day on Facebook yeah. <laughs> looking at who can I debate with yeah. about my policies? Yeah. They're not doing that. They can't. Mm-hmm. Um, um, you know, celebrities, the same thing. They're not doing that. So, mm-hmm. you know, you got to writing has helped me understand the worth behind my words. There's mm-hmm. currency behind my words. And thus I have to spend it judiciously. Mm. And you have other boundaries too around social media. I th- don't you? Like I was reading this morning in one of your posts that you use tools so that you're only on there at certain times of the day and so you can really respect your writing time. And That's it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. So it's, um, it's all there's boundaries around, you know, I've become more proficient in saying no. And I think you were the first interview I said yes to for 20, uh, for this new year. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yay. But it's because... We had built trust, right? Because mm. you're a patron in my exclusive community and I could I could see that you honor my time and my space. And so when you honor my boundaries, I have all the time for you. Mm. Very easy to say yes. So um so I've been able to strengthen my no. I, I love getting seven hours of sleep a night. And especially if I, give, if I have to get up at 4.30 a.m., there's a lot I have to say no to. Yes. And I don't feel guilt or shame over saying no. And again, this has come out of writing. Mm. Because if I'm going to sit there at 4.30 a.m. for 365 days and, and, and punch out half a million words, I better have some strong boundaries. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and you can't be distracted, can you? Like, I can't be distracted. Yeah. yeah. And that's exactly what happened in the month before I reached my goal. So many distractions came up. So mm. many. So well, you're unwell for as well. So that tends to hijack our plans. So, yeah, I got sick. And then all of a sudden, everybody wanted me to work on something with them. Mm. People from my past came up. Oh, I'm, I'm doing this. After 10 years, I'm doing this. I'd love for you to take part. And I'm considering all these. Instead of saying no from the beginning, I'm like, oh, well, this is an old call. And so, you know, all these things are just popping up to derail me. I'm a month away. I've spent 11 months plugging away. I'm one month away from my goal. And all it's what Stephen Pressfield in his book called The War of Art calls resistance. And he capitalized the R, resistance. Because resistance knows that should you reach that goal, you will change your identity. Yeah. You'll no longer be the amateur. You'll now be a professional. And so resistance shows up just about that moment where you're about to pass that finish line and brings an army with you. And so that army, in my case, was the old colleague popping out of the, out of the woodwork, uh, was, um, other, was getting sick, was um, another co- colleague of mine saying, hey, why don't you join this? this? Like, it's just, like, it was crazy. Stay focused. Just understand <laughs> resistance will show up. Stay focused. Yeah. And you can do that when you are more clear on, on what it is that you are doing, what path so you are clear. on. Mm. Yes, it's beautiful. The clarity is beautiful. Mm. And when you, know, you when you were talking about social media before, I was also thinking about your your powerful the reaction fast program that you did around Facebook and the algorithm there. Because there's that whole other side too to how we show up and what we see 
on social yes. media and people spend so much time there now and it does impact how we feel emotionally and our days. Yes, um, it does. Yeah, so maybe if it's all right, can you talk people through the reaction fast and are you going to do another round of it or can people just go and find it in right. Patreon when they become members? Yeah. Um, so I used to work in tech and I worked in tech for about 15 years. I, I taught myself HTML and <laughs> I might be dating myself. Um, I, I, I ta taught myself HTML back in the late 90s <laughs> after I graduated from university. Very clever. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and little did I know that would open. And it's because I wanted to launch a magazine, and so the guy I was dating at the time was like, "Well, don't do a print one." And he he was absolutely right. I didn't know the late '90s that newspapers and magazines were just going on this downward. You know, it was a, it was declining. Yeah, it was the beginning of the decline. So he said, "Don't do print. Do it online." And it's like online. And I knew about online world because I had an email address. But he's like, "Yeah, just just there's a." HTML t tutorials online, just teach yourself and you should be okay. And I did. I taught myself HTML, which was like the advanced <laughs> languaging code for websites back then. And it then, shows that you have patience too. <laughs> <laughs> it does. I was cutting up graphics, putting them together in Photoshop. So um, he helped me because he had a computer science degree. He knew much more of the back end coding. So he helped me with that. And I launched my first dot com in the late 90s. So I went from being a programmer to software project management and and I started to see the growth of algorithms because I would see how it was um, done in the programming environment. And so that early look, I didn't know then that it would become, that algorithms would become a tool in which it props up white privilege, white supremacy, and so on. And so when people hear me say that, they're like, what? What do you mean? Yeah. And so that's something that I explored in uh, some of the posts I did right before I launched the Reaction Fast was bringing awareness that the algorithms, so the majority of programmers in the tech field are white male. About 70% of those, well, in the US, United States, 70% of those who are programmers are white male. And the next dominant group, it would be um, Asians at about anywhere between 20 to 20, 20 to 25%. So I mention this because oftentimes it's their decisions that go into how the algorithms operate. So I'll give you an example. When I worked in software, one of the things that we had to do was test the algorithm that we're building for the learning management system that we're building, we had to test the algorithm against data. But in the test environment, we didn't want to use real people's data because that's, you know, unethical. That's not like, so we would have to make up data. So some of the decisions that we did, so, you know, we wanted to test how would transactions happen in terms of shipping address, name, and so forth. So a lot of our programmers were Chinese. And so they would set some of the names and addresses in the system. So the addresses were mainly addresses of people of, um, of a, a portion of Toronto where predominantly a lot of Chinese live. Mm. And then the salary and income that was set for these fake profiles in our system was quite high. 
And then I'd overhear conversations. Yeah, but if she lives in this area, which would be a poor area, you know, that would be our um, black female and she would earn 25000 a year. And let's have her have, you know, three kids, you know. So these are the conversations that are taking place. Mm-hmm. So some people will say, but data is neutral. And they're right. But data operates according to how someone has programmed it to operate. Yeah. So if these are the decisions that are going into how data is used and how algorithms are built, then it will be a reflection. It will see that reflection online. So oftentimes, and you've seen this, Naomi, that oftentimes when I use the word white people, I don't spell out white, Mm. W-H-I-T-E, because oftentimes the algorithm will penalize you if you're not white and you're talking about white people. Mm. So, uh, and there's many articles that have been published, um, and I'll share one with you, Naomi, so you can share with listeners, that um, a lady had gone on to Facebook to share her experience with being called the N-word. And so, and she spelled it out, the N-word, that was referred to her as a black woman. Facebook deleted the post and locked her out of her account. She wasn't calling someone the N-word. She was describing her experience of how hurt she was at being called the N-word. And so it's very tenuous when when we're using, and, and, and this can go for, you know, how you look and, and types of like one, one of my friends was complaining that she, she posted a picture of her in a bikini and like it was 200 reactions. And then she posted a, a something, a thought provoking piece and only 10 people. And she's like, you guys are so dumb. I'm going to unfriend you. You should be liking my thought. And I said to her, it's the algorithms, baby. Yeah. <laughs> it rewards. That's why a lot of my posts, I'll post them with a selfie. Yes. Because the algorithm rewards your beauty. Yeah. And that's a reflection of, you know, male bias. Men love beauty. Mm. That's programmed into the code. Let's, 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 let's um, heighten these. Like, it's all there. Mm. It's all there. So the reaction fast was a method by which some, some things that I did to help because if you know what the algorithm algorithms want, just feed it. Yeah. Just feed it. And the reaction fast was to help you kind of clean the slate a little bit so that the algorithms could get used to your new profile and make your posts more visible. Yeah. Well, if the algorithms reward beauty, then post a selfie with your thought provoking piece. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> yeah. If you want more of diversity in your feed in terms of people you interact with, then there's little things that you can do. And this is this is not manipulating the system. There's nothing illegal. But there's little things you can do. For example, what you can do is you can start to visit people's profiles that you haven't seen in a while. Mm. Or you can change your news feed from top stories to most recent. Like there's little things you can do. Mm. And the reaction fast was a 10-day fast that allowed that where the first thing was to stop reacting, stop clicking on the react button. Yes. I've done it since November, 2016. Yeah. That was the last month I clicked on the reaction button yeah. and I've never clicked on it since. <laughs> so good. I found yeah. that. So it was, you know, that's the first thing you did and it's so automatic. You just, without even thinking, you just automatically react 
Um, and I've what I've found interesting doing that challenge as well is I obviously saw a massive shift in in my feed and what I saw and how people responded to me and also finding people who had been lost um, mm-hmm. who whose stuff I never saw anymore but they were important to me but I just hadn't seen their things yes. and then I've just found it interesting and I I knew this was going to happen I think I said to you at the time when it finished that I I'm going to schedule in trying to do this mm-hmm. every at least every quarter especially since it's it, they're simple things you're talking about it's not doesn't take a day you know an hour every day it takes five minutes or less somewhere even less than a minute um and I thought I've got to do this every quarter and exactly what I predicted has happened once I you know <laughs> stopped started reacting again because I just got yeah. back into the habit and <laughs> <laughs> it's so hard and stopped remembering things like I, one thing I found really funny was I think you shared that if you hover over a post for a while, you're telling them that you're interested in, in yeah. that and, yes. they, and, it, and it remembers that. And I think, gosh, a lot of the time I hover over posts that I'm thinking, what the F? Like, like that I'm really <laughs> angry about. And <laughs> But I don't exactly. respond because I, right. I just don't think they're worth my response. But I'll read them and I'm just like, oh, my gosh. And I just told Facebook that... <laughs> I want to yes. see more of their stuff. So more of their stuff yeah. starts popping up on my feed. And I'm like, that was, I was there because I was trying <laughs> to, to understand see, why you're like that. <laughs> it's the little things. Yeah. And if, and again, if we understand what Facebook wants, you just, be, it's like one of my friends, she's an etiquette coach. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I, when I first met her and I found out, you know, she's like, I'm sitting at the table and I have my back straight and my feet on the floor and my hands both on the table. And I'm just like, okay, which fork do I use? Which, which spoon <laughs> do I use? Is she watching me? <laughs> and so she looked at me, she goes, relax. She said, everyone does this, but I'm not here to criticize anything that you're doing. Mm. And so she said to me, Hillary, Hillary Robinson's her name. She said to me, that what she does is she teaches you what etiquette is so that you know which rules to break. Ha, huh. love that. And so that always stuck with me, right? Mm. So if you understand what Facebook wants, the idea isn't to go out and break Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> but instead, if you understand that Facebook at its core wants high engagement, is going to reward you if you post certain things. Um, leave there's certain keywords that are triggers for the algorithms to say nope we're not going to show this nope nope don't use like you know get this free or sales now or you know some of those sales like don't use that and anything with links is that in my imagination yeah no it's not as soon as you put a link in there it's like Mm. no engagement Mm. so understand what facebook wants and once you understand then you just feed the beast (laughs) yeah so it works for you so it works for you yeah and so since that discovery, you know, Facebook works for me. Yeah. I don't hate it. I'm not mad at it. Yeah. I love that. I'll share. Um, I'm going to share, obviously, your Patreon page anyway in the show notes, but it's pretty easy, isn't it? It's patreon.com slash Lisa Renee Hall. Um, yes. And I'll put the specific, maybe the first date. Is there yes. a specific link? There's a specific link, isn't there, to the to post of the reaction fast, the first date that they can then go to once they've yes, yeah, once there they, is. But um, once they go to the Patreon link, uh, they'll see on the sideline. Side? Did I just say sideline? I'm talking like I'm talking sports. Um, <laughs> I still understood. 
you'll see on the sidebar, yeah. you'll see um, there'll be a tag that says uh, reaction fast. And if you click on that, uh, you'll gain, you, you'll, act, unless you are a patron, you actually won't gain access to it. Yes. But uh, the 10 lessons are there. And if you're seriously interested in changing up your news feed and understanding what Facebook wants and I mean you could research this on your own or you can just you know the the, the difference with me is that I experiment on myself mm. <laughs> and then I reveal the results to you so everything is based on on real experimentation yes and uh, so I've done it so yes and and you can join patreon as my patron for as little as three dollars us a month. And uh, as you heard from Naomi, she's received such value because it's not just the fast, uh, the reaction fast. Um, I have another 10-day challenge coming out, which is called the Sacred No Challenge. Ooh, that sounds great. Yeah. So you'll get access to that, Naomi, um, and anyone else who becomes a patron. But the, the patron relationship, and I love saying patron. Like just today, I, I connected one of my patrons with someone else. And I said to the person, I said, my patron. And I just felt like I, I felt like putting on a long silk glove up to my elbow, <laughs> waving as I said it. My patron. <laughs> so it just feels good to say that. But but the relationship that is being formed is patrons come in, they nourish me with their financial gift, and then in return, that provides me the space to continue producing my writings mm. and, and other content. Yes. So, and then I, I add these bonuses to, as a thank you for staying with me for the long haul. Mm. Because as part as a patron, as part of your patronage, I'm also going to share clips from the documentary with you before the entire uh, movie is done. And so, again, that's a gift and that's a thank you for being my patron. So there's a lot of cool things, cool stuff. Yeah, sounds like there's lots of exciting things to come. I, I can't wait uh, being in there already and I hope others listening will join as well. You are my favorite, I shouldn't say that, <laughs> person that I have on Patreon. And I, I think that is because you are so active there and you've built a beautiful community there and you do give so much value and the power of the questions that you ask and also how you don't just ask questions, but you connect it to your own experience and what you're going through. And it's so powerful. So join, and what, join people. Join people. <laughs> and I'm telling you, I've got such, uh, you know, the – I mean, there's a there's a large group of Americans, but my next largest group is Australians. Like, oh, what? Isn't that interesting? <laughs> it's so interesting. Not Canadians where I am, but Australia. And I'll tell you this: I am obsessed with Australia, and I want to make a trip there. So, so you have patrons from Australia join. Yes. And of course, I know that your podcast is listened by an international audience. Yes. So um, all are welcome in the exclusive community on Patreon, yes. and that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and I know you'll post the link. Definitely. And is that the main way that we can support you and your work at the moment and what's coming yes. next for you, including the documentary? And Yes. Yes. Yes, it is. I um, don't do one-to-one -one coaching anymore. Um, I'm closing down my one, my consulting, my digital marketing consulting firm, all so that I can focus in on the next stage. Fantastic. Very yeah. Exciting. 
It is. It is. And this all came, again, this all came out of writing for 365 consecutive days. Yes. And I just love it's, it also, and this chat just kind of proves the, or circles back around to that initial point about what can come out when you ask someone what they're interested in or what they're mm-hmm. focusing on at the moment rather than what you do. I imagine right. the conversation would be very different if yes. we had have spoken about what you do at the start. Oh, absolutely. I'd be like, uh, and, and that was part of the problem over the past year was people would ask, well, what do you do? And I'm just like, um, I'm a writer. Because <laughs> yeah. I didn't know, like, like, I'm just writing, right? I don't have a deadline with a publisher. I, so like, well, I'm a writer. And it's like, oh, well, what do you, what do you write? And I'm just, I was like, uh, I write words. <laughs> and the next question was like, well, what kind of words do you write? And I'm like, ah, uh, English words. <laughs> Whatever feels channeled to me on the day. <laughs> Yeah, and and that, that's hard to explain, right? Because yeah. not everyone is there, right? It's yeah. like okay, whatever. Yeah. So um, yeah. So it it was it was tough because it, no one wants to hear a Gen Xer approaching middle age who kind of doesn't know what she wants to do in life. <laughs> I do. <laughs> <laughs> So and, and people get kind of nervous. It's like you know because we're we're so trained to be in production mode all the time. Yeah, we want to fix things. And and yeah, like that. yeah. Right. Even when you're at rest, you want to be working. That's why you know it's like oh, make money while you sleep is so popular because mm. <laughs> even while you're at rest, money needs to be flowing in. So mm. this all taught me that there is a stage in between that we need to get comfortable with and allow that process to take place. And for me, I could take the year because of how my life is set up and how, you know, my clients, the clients I still have, you know, so I was, I could take the year. And I mean, I didn't go overseas and climb some mountain and meet the guru at the top of the summit who gave me three words that changed my life. (laughs) No, you know, it was waking up at a time of the day that I had the most control. Yes. And sitting to write. And that was it. That's it. Yeah. I didn't have my eat, pray, love moment around the globe. It was right here every morning at 4.30 a.m. at my desk. Yeah. That's something that so many of us can do if we choose yes. to. Yes. Mm. Absolutely. Yes. Well, I'm aiming to be a little copycat and try to do that at some <laughs> some stage. Good. I'm building on the morning habits. So that's yet another thing that you've inspired me to do. So thank you so much for You're doing welcome. the work that you do and sharing those stories and those questions and taking us along for the ride and allowing us to be a patron. Um, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, Naomi. This is awesome. Thank you for listening to the Dream for Others podcast. For episode notes, further inspiration and access to my award-nominated free resources, please visit naomiarnold.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would appreciate if you would please subscribe, leave a review in iTunes or share it wide and far. If you want to more deeply connect with other folk who are dreaming for others, please head on over to my website, visit the podcast page and click on the link to our Dream for Others Ambassadors community. 
For as little as $1 per month, this community is helping me fund this podcast so I can continue to bring the free episodes to the public, featuring inspiring folk who are making a difference. In return, we have a private Facebook group, quarterly calls, free gifts, bonuses and resources, and are uniting as a small community to support each other in our dream for others. We would love if you would join us. In the meantime, let's continue to dream for others and I'll talk to you soon.